Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, the book of Acts, chapter two. Now before we pick back up with Acts chapter 2, which by the way we still won't complete today, the dawn of a new age has sprung, was brought about by the arrival of what the Father promised. And that was the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So then let's summarize what we discussed last time. The first words of Acts chapter 2 set the scene. And the first words are, the festival of Shavuot arrived. And we read that because of Shavuot, which required all male Jews to gather at the temple, all the believers, which as of this time consisted only of Jews, were gathered together at one place on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, where as a group they witnessed the astounding arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now the key to unlock the depth of this chapter and later chapters is to understand what Shavuot is, biblically and in Hebrew tradition. Because regardless of what we as modern day believers might mentally picture when we read the words of Acts 2, and how it has been typically presented to us by Christian Bible teachers and pastors, Luke told the story in the context of what the Jews thought and what the Jews believed in that era. Of course. Now I demonstrated to you through the writings of several ancient sages and rabbis, some dating to more than two centuries before the birth of Yeshua, that while Shavuot, also called Pentecost, had retained its original biblical agricultural meaning and motif, an additional meaning was eventually added as a tradition. And that additional meaning was that Shavuot was when God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. And to flesh out this additional meaning, we read several ancient Midrashim comments, interpretations about the Mount Sinai event. These comments said that the giving of the Torah came with loud noises, thunderings, indicating God's voice. Fire, flames, and it came in many, or better, all human languages, which at that time were thought to be 70 languages. Now to be clear, during Christ's era, and for at least 200 years before that, Shavuot, the fourth biblical feast of the annual seven feast cycle, had a dual meaning within Judaism. This dual meeting was not questioned. It was simply accepted as fact, if not common knowledge. For our purposes, it doesn't matter whether this additional meaning added through tradition is legitimate or not, although I speculate that it likely is legitimate. 
Because the issue is that the Jewish world of the Holy Land and of the Diaspora did believe it. And they accepted it as truth. Thus, since the New Testament was written by Jews and Jewish proselytes, such as Luke, this dual meaning for Shavuot forms the contextual background for this Pentecost event of the coming of the Holy Spirit of Acts chapter 2. Thus, we see that the coming of the Holy Spirit was accompanied with loud noises, flames, fire, and many human languages. Then we see that for the people of that day, it was essentially a replay of the Mount Sinai event of some 1300 years earlier. So to the Jewish believers who comprehended what was happening, the coming of the Holy Spirit was the second coming of the Torah. The difference between the first coming and the second coming of the Torah was expressed by the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, 30-32 we read, Here the days are coming, says Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by their hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt because they for their part violated my covenant even though I for my part was a husband to them, says Adonai. This covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Adonai. I'll put my Torah within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. So the first coming of the Torah was on Mount Sinai and God's word was written on stone tablets. The second coming of the Torah was on Mount Zion at Pentecost. And it was written internally into the hearts of believers. Notice the not-so-coincidental pattern of the first and second coming of Christ and the first and second coming of God's Word, the Torah. But I also want you to take note of to whom Jeremiah says this new covenant is going to be given. Does it say to Gentiles? Does it say to anyone and everyone? No. It says to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So does this mean that only Hebrews can partake of the new covenant sealed in Yeshua's blood? Yes, it does. But with a caveat. Paul explains how it is that Gentiles can be included and what kind of attitude Gentiles ought to have if they are included in the New Test in the New Covenant in Romans chapter 11 verses 13 through 18 we read this however to those of you who are Gentiles I say this Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting issue aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. 
Now if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and you've become equal shares in the rich root of that olive tree, then do not boast as if you're better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember, you're not supporting the root. The root's supporting you. Yet how much of the church has come to the point that the new covenant was meant for Gentiles to the exclusion of Jews, the house of Judah. The new covenant is for Gentiles. The old covenant is for Jews. Or that the Jews are obligated to the covenant of Moses for their salvation. Gentiles are obligated to the new covenant for ours. Clearly, Old Testament prophecies and New Testament writings say the opposite. So, since the prophecy of Jeremiah says that the New Covenant is for the house of Israel and for the Jews, and that the Torah will now be written on their hearts by means of God's Spirit, as we learn from Isaiah chapter 2. Is that what actually happened? Let's reread Acts chapter 2 in small portions today. And I'm going to comment on each small but greatly significant segment. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 1 and we're going to read the first 13 verses. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1361. The festival of Shavuot arrived, and the believers all gathered together in one place. Suddenly, there came a sound from the sky like the roar of a violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then they saw what looked like tongues of fire which separated and came to rest on each one of them. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. They began to talk in different languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem religious Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were confused because each one heard the believers speaking in his own language. Totally amazed. They asked, how is this possible? Aren't all these people who are speaking from the Galil, from the Galilee? How is it that we hear them speaking in our native languages? We are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews by birth and proselytes, Jews from Crete, from Arabia. How is it that we hear them speaking in our languages about the great things God has done? Amazed, confused, they all went on asking each other, what can this mean? But others made fun of them and said, oh, they've just had too much wine. We're told, this is really fun by the way, we're told that tongues of fire came from the sky, from heaven, and then separated into many more tongues and these tongues came to rest 
on each of them, meaning the believers, individually. And as a result, says verse 4, each believer began to speak in different languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak. Now the Greek word that is translated in English as tongues and as languages is the same. Glossa. Glossa. So the package, uh, the passage rather says that the glossa of fire rested upon the believers and then each believer began to speak a different glossa. Glossa means language, but it also means the tongue organ. That's what we all have in our mouths. And since the tongue is necessary, uh, it's a necessary part of the anatomy for intelligible speech, then we see why languages were also called tongues. But why did Luke call the separate branches of fire that landed on each believer tongues? Did they look like human tongues? Possibly, but I doubt it. Instead, I believe the articulate Luke no doubt was thinking in terms of the ancient understanding of Shavuot that was common knowledge within Second Temple Judaism. Let me recall for you the teaching of Rabbi Tanhuma that helped to shape the standard mental picture that Jews had for what occurred at Mount Sinai during Israel's exodus from Egypt. He said this, All the people saw the voices. Note that it does not say saw the voice, but saw the voices. And wherefore Rabbi Yochanan said, The voices went out and were divided into seven voices, and from seven voices into seventy tongues, so that all the nations would hear and every nation heard the voice in its own tongue and was amazed but the people of Israel heard the voice and they were not hurt so Luke was employing the word tongue in the same sense as this midrash that was a cornerstone of Jewish understanding of the giving of the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai at Shavuot The voice divided into many tongues. Each person heard the voice in their own tongue, their own language. So not only is Luke putting this Pentecost happening in the context of the long ago Mount Sinai event, he's using the same key words, such as tongue, fire, to make that connection. But there's yet another connection that must not be overlooked. At Pentecost, we have one Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, being sent by the mediator Yeshua, now arisen, ascended, sitting at the Father's right hand, that separates into many, and it rests upon each individual believer. In the book of Numbers, we read of the precursor to this Pentecost happening. And it happened to, and it happened because of, the first mediator, Moses. Listen to this in Numbers 11, 
24 and 25. Moshe went out and told the people what Adonai had said, and then he collected 70 of the leaders of the people and he placed them around the tent. Adonai came down in a cloud spoke to him, took some of the spirit that was on him and he put it on to the 70 leaders. And when the spirit came to rest on them, they prophesied. But not afterwards. Hmm. It's the same spirit that Moses the mediator had, God's spirit, became shared with the 70 elders. And when the 70 elders received this spirit, they began speaking ecstatic speech. See, ecstatic speech is what prophesying means here. Now, 1,300 years later at Pentecost, that same spirit that Yeshua the mediator had, he now shared with all Jewish believers. And when they received that spirit, what did they do? They began speaking ecstatic speech in different languages. God is a God of patterns. So everything we see happening in the New Testament was already established in the Old Testament. Only with the advent of Yeshua and the Ruach HaKodesh, these God patterns were brought to an even higher level in meaning. Pentecost was no different. But this also means that in order to correctly understand everything that happens in the New Testament, we first have to know the Torah. We have to know the Old Testament so that we learn the patterns and we learn the background context that the New is built upon. Now another important question for us to ponder. Who was it that received the Holy Spirit Who was it that saw everything that happened on that amazing day? The answer is in verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem religious Jews from every nation under heaven. Then we get a representative listing of just where all these religious Jews hailed from. But please note, only Jews saw what happened. Only Jews received the Holy Spirit. There is no Gentile representation mentioned or implied. Why were all these Jews present at Mount Zion? Because the pilgrimage festival of Shavuot required it of them. And note also the addition of the adjective religious to describe the Jews that had come. It wasn't much of a journey to come to Jerusalem for for local Judean Jews, nor was it all that hard for Galilean Jews. But for Jews who came from distant places, it disrupted their lives for weeks in a major way. It was quite costly economically for them. So the several millions of Jews who weren't all that religious didn't come. Only the most devout. Now obviously they weren't all standing on Mount Zion when this incredible visual display and this loud 
rushing, roaring noise erupted. There were too many Jews in town for them to be all at the same place. But verse 6 explains that this noise was so loud that others around the city heard it. And so they walked towards where it seemed to be coming from. Their reaction was bewilderment. Or as our complete Jewish Bible says, confusion. And why were they so bewildered? Because they were hearing the words spoken each in their own distinct language. So these bewildered religious Jews weren't in denial of what was happening. They just didn't know what to make of it. This short list of nations that these Jews came from is meant to be representative of the many nations and provinces that formed the Roman Empire. Certainly the Jews of the diaspora were present in virtually every nation of the empire. But there were greater concentrations in some of the nations than in others. Notice how Egypt is mentioned, for example. Philo, who lived at the same time as Jesus, reports that over one million Jews lived in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. A million Almost none of these visiting Jews that we're reading about here in Acts even spoke Hebrew. And a major portion of Israeli Jews can't speak Hebrew. There is a concerted effort in modern Israel to teach the many Jewish immigrants in the land to speak Hebrew. Instead, they live in ghettos. And they continue to speak Russian and Ukrainian and Ethiopian and Polish and German and French and so on. Now although some of these visiting Jews were awestruck at this incident of the languages, others of them mocked it. But to be sure their mocking was as mocking usually is. Sarcasm and not a very intelligent response. The accusation, think about this, the accusation that the believers were drunk and that's how they could speak all these languages is a bit irrational. No doubt, I think, it was meant to be a little bit humorous. Part of what made this event so difficult for this crowd of Jews to comprehend is that it was apparently quite well known just who these twelve disciples were, who they represented, and where they were from. Most of them were country folk from the Galilee. They weren't learned intellectuals. It's a little like the way rural Midwesterners in the USA are looked down upon by residents of New York City and Washington, D.C., They assume that the only intelligence that exists is among themselves. Many in that crowd were incredulous that Galileans could possibly be so multilingual. Well, let's read a little bit more. Let's pick up at verse 14 of chapter 2, and we will read through verse 23. Again, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're at page 1361. Then Kepha, that's Peter, stood up with the eleven and he raised his voice to address them. You Judeans 
all of you staying here in Jerusalem. Let me tell you what this means. Now listen carefully to me. These people aren't drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. Joel. Adonai says, in the last days, I will pour out from my spirit upon everyone. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, will I pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will perform miracles in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and thick smoke. The sun will become dark, the moon blood, before the great and fearful day of Adonai comes. And then, whoever calls on the name of Adonai will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Yeshua from Nazareth, Nazareth, was a man demonstrated to you to have been from God by the powerful works and miracles and signs that God performed through him in your presence. You yourselves know this. This man was arrested in accordance with God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. And through the agency of persons not bound by the Torah, you nailed him up on a stake and you killed him. Peter, the leader and the spokesman for the twelve disciples, stands up to address this huge crowd that's come to investigate this noisy, rushing wind sound, as well as this cacophony of many foreign languages that are being spoke at the same time. And he begins by calling out to you, Judeans. Why, when the crowd was so internationally mixed, did he call out the local residents of Judea? It was because the Galilee was cut off from the academic and cultural center of Judaism, which was located in Jerusalem of Judea. And no doubt Peter recognized that it was these arrogant Jews from Judea who were the mockers. So addressing the only half-serious accusation about the believers being drunk, he answered in an equally half-serious response. He says it's so early in the morning that nobody has had time to get drunk. Now he goes on to explain what the arrival of the Holy Spirit does mean. And Peter says that this day was spoken of by the prophet Joel. He quotes from Joel chapter 2. and That's in most Bibles now. In the complete Jewish Bible, it's chapter 3. Peter understands that the last days are now underway. And that what everyone has just witnessed is essentially a fulfillment of what Moses had hoped for. Back in Numbers 11, verse 29 we read, but Moshe replied, Are you so zealous to protect me? I wish all of Adonai's people were prophets. I wish Adonai would put his spirit on all of them. And since this prophecy of Joel deals with the end times, and we are currently studying a New Testament book, then let's take just a moment to get some terms squared away. The last days 
plural, last days, is a long, indeterminate period of time that begins once the Messiah has come. And of course, he has. The ending of this long period of the last days is the end of the era of humanity which coincides with the entry into the thousand year reign of Christ when he returns. The last day, singular, last day, is synonymous with the day of the Lord or the day of Adonai. This particular day is still future for us. Now, is this a literal single day? That's unclear. But it essentially signals the final wrath of God in the final hours of just the few days leading up to Christ ruling the world from His throne in Jerusalem. So while Peter can correctly interpret the prophet, prophetic scriptures and what he has personally witnessed with Messiah Yeshua and now the Holy Spirit as the entry point into the period of the last days, that last day itself is not known to him. Thus, Joel's prophecy covers from the time of Peter all the way until the end of mankind's history as we know it. Now it's interesting to me that Joel and Peter speak of the sun becoming dark as a sign because that sign indeed happened on the day Yeshua was crucified. In Matthew 27.45 we read from noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon the land was covered with darkness. Now, was this darkness at Yeshua's death what Joel was speaking about? Perhaps. But whatever happened there at Yeshua's execution seemed to be only a local event. What Joel is prophesying seems to be affecting the whole world. Nonetheless, Peter is clear that he views everything that's happened as the beginning of the end. And in fact, in some of Peter's and Paul's epistles, we find them trying to prepare folks for the end, which they obviously think is going to happen in their lifetimes. So that partly explains their sense of urgency and taking the gospel message out at great personal cost. But now Peter moves into a stage of his speech in which he wants to connect that final line of that Joel passage he spoke about with Yeshua. That is, where we hear the prophet Joel say, and then whoever calls on the name of Adonai will be saved is referring to Jesus as the name to be called upon. But this connection has its problems. I've often told you that the contents of the New Testament consists half or a bit more of Old Testament quotes. And it is best, as we encounter each of these Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, to go back to our Old Testaments and read them there. 
often there are subtle differences. Now, sometimes the differences are more substantial because the New Testament speaker apparently is either paraphrasing or perhaps molding that Old Testament quote to better fit what he's trying to get across to his listeners. Now, here in Acts 2, as we read Joel's prophecy, it's given to us in Greek, which is the language of the New Testament. However, what Peter was quoting was written centuries earlier in Hebrew. So when we see the phrase, stay with me, when we see that phrase, that last phrase that Peter quoted from Joel, whoever calls on the name of Adonai will be saved. In Greek, the word is kurios. That's what's being used to translate Adonai. Whoever calls on the name of kurios will be saved. And kurios means Lord. And this is what we find in almost all of our Bibles. In Christianity, it's a given that all mentions of the word Lord, especially in the New Testament, are referring to Jesus Christ. Here's the difficulty with that. When we look at Joel in the original Hebrew Bible, which is what Peter is quoting from, of course, we find this. Whoever calls on the name of yud Hey vav Hey will be saved. Hmm. So the Greek New Testament substitutes the term Lord, kurios, instead of using God's formal name as it was in the original Hebrew of the prophet Joel. As those who've studied with us since Genesis know, the Torah says God's formal name is Yudhe-Bavhe, some say Yahweh, I say Yehovah. So Peter says, quoting Joel, whoever calls on the name of Yehovah will be saved. Essentially, Peter is making the leap that to acknowledge the name of Yeshua as Messiah is the requirement to be able to call on the name of Yehovah to be saved. Yeshua is the sole agent of salvation, but Yehovah is the sole source of salvation. And this is something that believers, Jew and Gentile, need to understand. There is a terrible doctrine that has existed since the early Roman church, which implies a replacement of Yehovah the Father with Yeshua the Son. They can speak of the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the Father is often seen as outdated, irrelevant now. Yeshua was given power and authority from his father Yehovah, but Yeshua didn't replace his father. In fact, when he ascended, we're told he went where? To sit at his father's right hand. Yeshua is the way to the Father. He said so. Not the replacement of his Father. 
And Peter and Paul and other disciples had their work cut out for them to try and find a way to first comprehend this challenging reality and then to explain it first to the Jewish people then later to uninitiated Gentiles. And make no mistake, fellow believers, without the Holy Spirit indwelling us, I see no way that a human can comprehend this mysterious understanding. It's impossible. Never take it for granted that you understand. Because what I just explained to you is unintelligible to non-believers. It takes faith in Messiah to arrive at this point. Truly a leap of faith. And few seem, few seem to be able to make that leap. So count yourself as immensely blessed that you can and you did. Well, the same Peter now who ran and cowered when Christ was arrested, even denying that he knew Yeshua, he now boldly takes aim at this huge crowd of befuddled Jews standing before him and he tells them they are personally responsible for Yeshua's death. Oh, wow. How do you suppose that went over? Let me say up front, that this verse is often used in Christendom to say that the Jews are Christ killers. That's where they get it from. That charge was often used in Nazi Germany as a valid excuse for systematically exterminating the Jewish people. Do not mistake what Peter is saying to this crowd as being the same as the false charge of killing God that is so often leveled at the Jewish people in general. And we're going to deal with that shortly. Peter then lays out his case for Yeshua as the Messiah. He says that the signs and miracles and powerful works that Yeshua did were the result of God's power through him. In fact, says Peter, you know this yourselves. In other words, many in the crowd at some time or another witnessed some of these signs and miracles performed by Yeshua. So what Peter is saying isn't hearsay or a tall tale. He says, you saw it. Then he goes on to say that Yeshua's arrest wasn't an accident. It was according to God's predetermined plan. And even more importantly, even though the Jewish people didn't actually kill Christ, they would use Gentiles, those not bound to the Torah, to do the job for them. Alright, let's pause here for a moment. What the phrase in verse 23 says is, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. Let's focus on that word lawless. In Greek, the word is enomos. Enomos. Now, nomos means law. A nomos is the opposite. So it means without law. Thus the complete Jewish Bible translation of not bound by the Torah in place of the Greek word a nomos gets the idea across better because in the Bible the term law 
always refers to only one of two things. It's either the Torah, the law of Moses, or later on, it's tradition. Rabbinical law. I can't begin to emphasize strongly enough that especially when reading the New Testament and we come across the term law or lawlessness, that the only law this is referring to is the law of Moses. Or tradition perhaps. It has nothing to do with civil laws. It's not about a leader disregarding his country's constitution. Let me give you a good example. And in order to do this, I'm going to use the the Revised Standard Version Bible because it phrases this passage in a familiar way to to most Christian Bibles. In 2 Thessalonians 2.1, it begins, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet Him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of perdition who opposes, who exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. What does lawlessness mean in this context? And the word being translated for lawlessness is anomos. So lawlessness is a good translation. Does this mean Roman law? Does it mean USA or EU law? Does it mean international law? Well, of course not. It's referring to the only law that God deems as relevant. His law. The law of Moses. The Torah. See, this passage is of course speaking of the Antichrist who sets himself against God. And what better way to set yourself against God than to set yourself against His laws and commandments? In this passage of 2 Thessalonians, this lawlessness going against Torah is called rebellion in God's eyes. So, who actually nailed Jesus to the cross and killed him? Roman soldiers who were a nomos, lawless people living outside the Torah. Yet, as Peter says, the Jewish people can't escape guilt. Because they goaded the Romans into doing their dirty work for them. But if the Jews were communally responsible, then so were the Gentiles. Right? Peter further emphasizes that the Jews responsible for Christ's death were the ones he says personally witnessed the signs and miracles that Yeshua performed and they refused to accept it. These particular Jews were well aware of it. Peter says at the end of verse 22, You yourselves know this. They have no excuse. And by the way, this brings us right back to when this address to the crowd starts in verse 14 and Peter opens with, You Judeans! In other words, where was Christ 
crucified. Jerusalem in Judea. Who were the Jews that were calling for the release of that convicted murderer, Barabbas, but the death of the innocent Yeshua? Almost entirely. It was Judeans, citizens of Judea, who had no regard for this filthy Galilean rabble-rouser who dared to challenge the Jerusalem temple authorities. I'm going to close for today with this. If any Jew is most guilty of killing Christ, it's Judas. One of the twelve original disciples handpicked by Yeshua. And beyond him, it would be those Judeans who insisted that Pontius Pilate had Yeshua executed for them. The notion that all Jews living in Christ's day, or that all Jews alive since then are somehow guilty of Messiah's death and somehow should be seen as Christ killers is not only naive, it's slanderous. It's ridiculous. Many Judean Jews may have wanted him dead, but it was the Roman Gentiles who gladly killed him. And they enjoyed torturing him in the process. We'll continue with verse 24 of Acts chapter 2 next time.